Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live.
So attachments can be physical, attachments can be emotional, attachments can be spiritual. Don't just have attachments to the way things make us feel. Don't just have attachments to movies and music and restaurants that make us experience nostalgic about how we used to be. Some of us have attachments to seasons of time or days on a calendar. Uh, some of us have attachments to our car or our coach or our DVR. Some of us have attachments to coffee. Some of us have attachments to friends. It can be good stuff too. Some of us have attachments to activities. Some of us have attachments to um, really, really nice things. But what I've actually found is that most of those attachments, especially the good ones, the reason we get away, we let ourselves get away with the good ones is because most of those attachments are to the identity of ourselves that those attachments have attached my attachment to me being special allows me to feel like i'm been accepted by god and by you that my parents benefited from me lived up to expectations so there are as much as anything i think one of the most dangerous attachments what we do is we then qualify our attachments not in ourselves as special how many how many people remember not singing not because you actually thought it was bad but because that's not what you do you're the good kid who doesn't do certain things There's something within us that just remains connected to attachment in our attachment to many people. It's attachment to a false identity that I once had about self. And in other words for that, you can kind of remove it from God as much, but I'll say it anyway. It's called attachment to an identity. Attachment to an identity that is based on what you do, not the true fabric of what God has said you are. doesn't mean you shouldn't do the good things. doesn't mean you shouldn't recycle. doesn't mean you shouldn't protest or uh, act crazy. Act crazy. Being active is good. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do any of that good stuff, right? It doesn't mean you shouldn't open doors for elderly people. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't say please and thank you. But if you say, if you're saying please and thank you and being the most polite person in the room and the one that gets along with everybody and the one that everybody everybody likes is the thing that then defines you to you, that's an attachment that's false. It's not that there's anything wrong with doing those things, but those are attachments. So Lent is about unfettering from attachments. And one of the best ways to do that is to do that physically. Um, and it's simply just about getting, getting rid of things. So sometimes, uh, it's really a funny thing, um, that like my electronics are, because they're so obsessive obsessed, Getting something new, a new purchase. How many people use Amazon? What? Well, actually, 
do like a uh, for your life. Or two hands. That's right. No. So how many people have ever used it? Let me put it that way. How many people have ever gotten something in the mail, right? A, a, a purchase in the mail. You know that feeling when you get excited and you get home and it's locked at your door and you get in that house? I don't know. You probably ordered so much stuff you actually don't remember what it is. It's like, let's see, this could be the kitchen set, this could be the rocking chair, or this could be the antique piano. I've ordered all three from Tuesday. Um, And what happens is psychologists state that we are so in the West obsessed with purchases and excess that now the the release of uh, endorphins that you get that makes you feel really good and gooey when you're opening something new estimate that around uh, as little as 10 years ago, that same feeling used to last over an hour. Why? We need to make a move. And if you have it all, how to? Yeah. <laughs> if it's an ended same day, I actually had that happen on Sunday. Friends of mine, I was over their house in India, and they brought what I ordered that morning that night. Now, that was a really cool feeling. So that my point is that we're obsessed with the abundance when it's not good for us. that's how much great stuff. Today, we are finishing our study on um, Easter, and uh, the, the season of Lent, we're walking through the book of John, and I'd like to start, and we're going to end with this same quote, and it's the quote that I had on the slide for communion. First of all, is everybody all right? Okay, if you're depressed on Easter, you, you're missing it. Let me just put it that way. We're going to talk about that, but let me just throw that out there. If you feel anything other than jovial on Easter, you're you either. This is the party of party of party of party of parties. Um, and so I'd like to start with this quote, and then we'll end with it. Everything will be all right for all in the end. If it's not all right for all, it's not yet the end. Everything will be all right. wonderful heading that late great turn of earth where God's going to burn the whole thing up with a bunch of fire because for some reason God created this entire universe but really doesn't care about it just going to destroy it so in in the how many grew up with the thought that in the end destruction look up Armageddon somebody ever heard look up or you know REM sang about it the end of the world as we know it you know Um, so that idea is is the thing that says to us, okay, that if it's going somewhere bad, the first thing you have to remember is it's going somewhere good. It's going somewhere good. And and understanding that it's going somewhere good is what actually allows us to um, to mourn over the fact that uh, today we're going to sing about the uh, the song is a heavy must weary saints be comforted by the load and even he was injured from the bombing of that first the hebrew word for bombing is okay this is if it doesn't wrench your heart but we can we can 
understand and we can we can trust you with that we don't know we just don't know but if we can try as best we can to stop that now what can offset that is also understanding you know what the maybe the most hopeful thing i've heard in the last five years was that there is it's provable statistically and studies have proven i can prove it to you that there is less violence and crime in the world now than ever before less by far not even close we need that we need to hear that good stuff they don't tell you that on the news do they usually about more people have been killed in in chicago than ever before if i have one more person tell me that it's unsafe to go to any one place If you're not, uh, if you're not putting yourself in a bad, don't probably don't go to Classy Chassy on the worst end of the neighborhood. Uh, that's just a bad idea, okay? Especially on Easter. Uh, but uh, what I've really learned is that there's because all we know is right now, and so how can we appreciate the people in Venezuela who, for them, it probably doesn't feel like violence is that strong. But know that it's going somewhere good. And so within that, everything will be all right for who? All. Who's it going to be all right for? And if it's not, it's not the end game. So today is the biggest feast within the church calendar year. It is Easter, Resurrection Day, whatever you would like to call it. But what does that mean for us? Um, I actually heard, and I'm going to talk to you just a little bit about this. So go home uh, today when you have time and Google Eastern Orthodox Church Easter celebration and look at the pictures. Okay? Um, I've actually heard from several people that, um, and, and Brad Zertek is going to say to you guys more on that stuff, I'm sure, and he's my favorite theologian, um, but it actually came up through the Vineyard Movement. I joined the, the outpouring of the... Vineyard Blessings in Chicago, uh, and now he is an Eastern Orthodox priest, um, and he talks a lot coming from a similar background, and so I can relate to um, any of the differences, and he has said that if you really want to experience true excitement about Easter, you have to go to an Eastern Orthodox church, because we don't get that. Um, within the service, they do th- uh, a few things that are really interesting. First of all, the Orthodox are very demonstrative in their service, in their Easter service. They actually act out, the entire congregation acts out several parts of the resurrection story. And the other thing that you find is in the East, everybody, the entire town comes to church on Easter. Nobody stays home. Everybody's there, and the entire town acts the church out. First, they begin their Easter service at midnight. So they show up at midnight, and they begin by leading this procession out of the church. So they all gather in the church. Then they they lead a procession out of the church while singing this. The angels in heaven, O Christ our Savior, singing of thy resurrection, make us on earth also worthy for envy were they purified. So they gather outside, and the procession begins to circle the building. While they do this, they take these, um, they're different forms. Some of them are just these candles. Some of them are sticks of types. And they um, light them like a 
Sundays. Um, so don't be alarmed if you look at uh, the pictures of the Eastern Orthodox Easter service. You might get confused with, I don't know, it's like Charlotte, Charlottesville, if you would say. Uh, it's not that. It's not teaching tortures and people saying bad things. This is just what they do. And they have these huge torches. And they begin to, uh, to sing as they march around. And they begin to say, darkness and death of this world are being made into the light and life of the kingdom. And what they do is, from the inside of the church, this is true, you can watch it. From the inside of the church, an elderly person, an elderly man, um, goes inside the church and shuts the door and, and stands against the edges to guard it from being opened, to block it from being opened. This man is the stand-in for Hades or Hades. Does anybody know what Hades or Hades is? Death in the Bible. Well, we would say death, but that's just the Greek word for it. Um, Hades is the Greek word for death. So in Greek mythology, did you guys realize that we got the term Hades or hell from Greek mythology? We didn't come up with that. That's interesting, right? So Hades or hell is not even a place in Greek mythology. It's the name of the keeper of death. And it was always depicted as an old kind of decrepit man um, who would stand and guard. He was the keeper, like a, a the keeper, you would say, if you know that terminology. That's Hades or Hades. So what happens is this older man stands and blocks the door from the inside and acts as Hades. And then the priest, after they've marched around for an hour saying Christ has overcome death, Christ has overcome, they then, the priest comes up and hits the door. I, I pray that the old man's okay. I, I, that was my first thought is I'm like, I just see this old guy being trampled upon by the crowd. But uh, no, this is what they do. So he, he, um, he then opens the door, and as they walk through the door, they march in and sing, let God arise and let all that hate him flee from before his face. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death, and upon those tombs he has now bestowed life. Christ has overcome. This is what they do for Easter. And then you know what they do? They party. It is the celebration of celebrations. It is, you are not allowed, it's almost like when we talk about Christmas, how you're not allowed to be sad on Christmas in the church, uh, a traditional church. You're not allowed to be depressed on Easter. You just can't. And, and even if you probably were, you can't be. Because what they've done is they've embraced a 40-day season of Lent where they have mourned and they have broken free from attachments. And they've done all that interior work that on you can't, I, I would suggest this, you don't know how to teach until you've fasted. Part of our issue with feasting is we feast every day. Everything's a feast. And so what happens is they actually fast. And so they can then feast. So our version of Easter, as Christianity is, Christianity, is quite different. Um, my version of Easter growing up was more about trying to get excited about something that happened a few thousand years ago. That really means very little to me, if I'm honest. I actually told somebody the other day that I, maybe I said this Thursday night, that honestly, I it's probably... Until recent, it's probably been 10 years since I was genuinely excited about Easter. Because I just hated Easter. And it didn't mean anything. If I'm being honest, I mean, I'm grateful. 
don't get me wrong. I don't want to burn. You know, right? And so that's why we're cold. You know, so we spend this day celebrating the fact that we don't have to burn. Well, that's different, right? Like, what in the world is that? And so for me, it was really strange. The point of, uh, for us, was to try to get excited. And then if we can defend what Jesus did on Easter while never really moving into what it means for us. And if we did move into what it means for us, it was all something that we were to experience later. Because Jesus died and rose again, I can live eternally later. At the end of my life, when I'm supposed to die, I get to go to heaven where Jesus is. See, that was the whole concept. So something like Jesus died and rose again so I could live forever was the statement. If that is the end of what this means for me, then I never really will get it. Brain science, as well as psychology, has taught us recently that the human mind isn't capable of processing anything eternal or eternal. Incapable. So Jesus died and rose so that I could live forever is impossible for us to process. But that's all we were ever given. Let me ask you a dumb question. What's half of infinite? What's half of infinity? Infinity. What's a third of infinity? What's a tenth of infinity? What's one-tenth of one percent infinity? Stay with me. Real good. Thank you. So, if it's still infinity, can your brain process that a tenth of one percent of something is still that? No. It's impossible for us to process infinity. It's it's impossible for us to process eternity or forever. And so if what Jesus did for me only exists in something I can't process anyway, is it really livable for me? Is it really something that we can get excited about? No, not possible. And it's not our fault. I'm not being critical of anybody. It's just not possible within our consciousness. Haven't you ever had somebody ask you about eternity? And remember when you were a kid and you were honest with yourself before you got all religious about it? And you would and, and you would ask questions like, what will we do up there today? Anybody ever ask that question? And then we got too religious to ask that question. Didn't we? Because it, it, it was all anchored in that little song. Could only imagine. Will I dance before your Jesus or on my knees will I fall? Seriously? Seriously? Like, that's been supposed to answer the question. No, I'm sorry. Our brains are not, it's not possible for us to process it. So is it any wonder that in the West we don't get excited about Easter when the only promise of Easter is something I can't process in the first place? So be safer. I mean, like, I I hope it's okay to be safer. Be safer. I'm pastor. I say this. It's just the reality. I say this because I know I'm supposed to be excited. And I want to be excited. But it's it's impossible for me to be excited about something I can't process and don't know that I can ever even come close to understanding one millionth of one tenth of one percent. That's not even a real fraction. But that's just the way this works. And so.
so what happens is we then begin to live in this idea that says if you uh, if if it's out there and it's forever, then we come up with this thing because we understand it's incalculable and incalculable by the human brain. So we come up with this really interesting thing where this weird Christian end around happens and say that's why you have to know it by the spirit. Well, it's a really interesting thing because Paul says that we have been given the mind of Christ, not the spirit of Christ. So isn't it really interesting that Paul is actually saying that that's not the case? Paul is suggesting that it's we don't do this weird Christianese thing because if anybody has ever told you you have to know it by the Spirit, if it's something like eternity, it means they don't know it. It's an it's a non-answer. Haven't you ever heard a politician give an answer and you know that was a political answer? You know that thing was that thing stunk from ten miles away, right? Well, we do the same thing, and it's called pastoral answers, where we say things about horrific tragedies and say, well, you know, but God has, God's in control, and God has a plan. It just doesn't work that way. So what happens is it doesn't work. And so we really, uh, the reality is if we can't fully grasp anything that is infinite, so when we position our connection to the resurrection of Jesus out there somewhere in another place where God is in eternity in heaven, we have no connection to it at all. And it's no wonder that in the West we then struggle to connect anything. It's a non-connection. This also leads us posturing to argue over what sets our Savior apart from other saviors um, and saying that the thing that sets him apart is that he rose from the dead. Well, guess what? He wasn't the first one that people worshipped that they said rose from the dead. Do you realize that the language Paul used where Jesus has risen and ascended and is seated at the right hand of God, do you know what he was quoting? Caesar, because what was said of Caesar is that when the Caesar died, he ascended unto God and was seated at the right hand of the gods. Because he was called first the son of God, prince of peace, king of kings, lord of lords. Paul was subverting Rome. So ours is not the first to claim that those conversations with somebody where they ask you to justify or explain. So our resurrection, our we spend our Easter trying to make some type of historical justification of something that really we can't scientifically prove today, right? I mean, personally. Let me be clear. I'm not suggesting it didn't raise me. I believe it raised me. But if that's where we end it, we're missing the point. We're over here arguing about something historical that happened two years ago that was uh, 2,000 years ago that was not is not giving life to me. Now, let me ask you this. How does you arguing with somebody else and trying to prove to them that your God rose from the dead and actually ascended, how does that historical argument make you a more loving person? How does that argument, how does that conversation make you a more loving person? Does it? So is the resurrection really giving life to you? Are you just its defender in some weird way? So that's the thing. And so that's really what it ended up becoming to be a believer. Because to be a believer meant 
believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we become a believer. Isn't that a great word? So what it means is that you believe something. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Honestly, I believe that, that uh, uh, there was a man on the moon. But that doesn't change my life. That doesn't change the way I live. That, do, that doesn't change nothing. I believe that Doug Small could make a great president in 2020, March 2020 ticket that I'm voting. However, that doesn't change anything, does it? What we do is we use these code terms and we make our language about beliefs because everything is about do you believe the right thing? Have you prayed the right prayer and believe the right thing? So what we do is this allows us to maintain this separation from God out there somewhere else, sometime else, and it's all about what you believe or don't believe. And so in doing so, our language is we ask the question, oh, are they a believer? You ever ask that question? Or you've talked about somebody before and you go, oh, I believe that. I got Christian. <laughs> Have you ever done this? They're a jerk. That guy just put me off. Right? That kind of thing is what we do. I do it all the time. And we use, isn't that a weird terminology to say, are they a believer? As if them believing in something that happened 2,000 years ago somehow qualifies them for being like Jesus? Isn't that a weird thing to think? So what happens is we actually use this code word for a historical event called Easter. In reality, our requirement was orthodoxy, which orthodoxy means right belief. Right belief is what it means to be orthodox. That's literally what the word means, right? Belief, orthodoxy. And so what we said is, are you a Christian means do you believe the right thing? And that means you have to believe that Jesus came and died on the cross and that Islam will send you to hell. You have to believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And if you have ever, I don't know, uh, read a Buddhist meditation book, then you're going to burn. You have to believe uh, that that um, you uh, don't aren't allowed to have any Harry Potter movies in your house. You have to believe that all of your precepts have to be on Payless. Right? All of this stuff, it's belief. When in reality, what it should be about is this really different different thing because if you believe, can there be something that actually isn't measurable by lifestyle? If you believe is not a measurable lifestyle. If you believe is internal. But if you believe, which tended to be something that wasn't measurable by our lifestyle of being more loving, more self-sacrificial, more merciful, or more grace-filled, in many cases, it just allowed us to be somewhat smug and often exclusionary from those who didn't believe like we believed. It actually should, when we put it in that way, have been smug exclusionary towards those who didn't believe. So we have no problem being anybody that lived before Jesus. Americans and stuff. 
probably go up for that altar call. That's terrifying. Billy Graham would go up to that altar call. So that's what we do because it's about personalism. So what this actually says in the Greek is all have been raised with Christ. So if you're alive, you were raised with Christ. Period. If you are breathing, you were raised with Christ. When Christ rose, you rose. He says it again later when he says, all are in This move of, of this personal, hyper-individualized salvation is, is for many reasons, um, uh, not the least of which, it allows us to be self-protective. And what's interesting is it allows us to protect ourselves against vulnerabilities required to exist within the greater whole. So individualized salvation allows us to keep boundaries or walls in place that protect us from vulnerability that is required to be part of a bigger whole. Personalized salvation allows you to not really live in tension. Interestingly enough, what you begin to find is I can say within the confines of my thinking in, in this individualized salvation, I can, I can say within the confines of my thinking, my safety, my self-preservation, my own personal wealth, my own personal wealth, etc. And we move this to the spiritual with Jesus as my own personal savior. The ego wants control at all costs, period. The ego wants control at all costs. As soon as it's salvation for all, I no longer care. Your salvation is my salvation, and your sin is my sin. That's what Paul's saying, and that's what Jesus is saying, because I'm not my control. Because as long as it's within my control, then I can get by by self-preservation. So what happens is, this moves contradictory to the nature of the gospel, which always is about the liberation and flourishing of all. The gospel is the only true win-win. The, I, I just say that again. The gospel is the only true win-win. And do we like win-wins? Nope. Do we really like, see, we don't, it's most of us, it's not far enough that we just win. We want somebody else to do what? is through two metaphors primarily in the West, sports and business. And we have a God, well, yeah, I guess not really really if you want to use the judgment tool. Because in court, you've got prosecution and the defense, and guess what? Somebody's winner, somebody's loser. Somebody's paying, and somebody's getting a reward. That's how we like things. What would it be like if we went and saw a situation where in the Super Bowl, and I'm not saying this happened this week, uh, because that's a Patriots win again, don't look at me, but the uh, but in the, in the Super Bowl this coming year, what would it be like if at the end they're like, you know what, we'll just take a win win? It would just, we'd freak out, we wouldn't know what to do, because we're so programmed, 
somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. And so what I would like to suggest this morning is two points. First, I'd like to read the, the story of Mary Magdalene, and we're going to quickly go through this, and then we're going to try and miss about two older um, an older view of what the resurrection really means. We're going to use the Gospel of John as we've been doing, uh, utilizing that through the, the Easter journey. And we're going to look at John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter the other and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, saying, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and read, uh, reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following and went to the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been put on them, but not lying with the linen wrappings, but lying by themselves. Excuse me for naming wrappings there. Okay, I know it's tricky. Um, then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed, uh, for as they w did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, the disciples then went and found where I had seen him. Now what is Mary doing? And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. Remember when we talked about uh, um, uh, as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting where the body had once been, and one at the head of the uh, and one at the feet. And they said to her, "Woman, why are you weeping?" And she said, "They've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him." When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was him. And Jesus said, "Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you? Who are you looking for?" Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, "Sir, where have you carried him? Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away." Jesus said to her, "Mary." She turned and said to him in Hebrew, "Rabboni," which means teacher. Jesus said, "Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my brothers. Uh, excuse me. But go to my brothers and say, I am ascending to the Father." But notice, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that she had, uh, he had said these things to her. Now, a couple interesting things um, that I'd like to, to note here in the context um, this absolutely, this gospel of John, first of all, John is the only gospel that tells this story. Okay? John is the only gospel that gives the narrative. Uh, John is the only gospel, because if you remember, we talked about that the, one of the threads woven through the book of John um, is the gardener narrative. So when she sees Jesus, what does she see instead of Jesus, her Lord? She sees John say, from the beginning to the end, gardener, gardener, gardener. I think I, I actually looked and I think she was putting in Latin there in the context of the gospel. So, and, and just remember, John is rewriting John's. John is rewriting John. Where does Genesis start? He's standing in the garden. 
don't. So what happens in this account is really interesting. A little background, first of all, about Nadab. How many people have heard Mary Magdalene? Raise your hand. Okay, okay, great. So you guys know all about her. Okay, let me check. Uh, see if you can maybe throw some things in here that we haven't heard before. Uh, so interestingly enough, when you first meet her in Luke's gospel, as a follower of Jesus, you would have to have seven spirits with her. Somehow, how many have ever heard that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute? Do you realize the Bible never says that once? Never says it in the Bible, never says it in a commentary, never was written in church history, ever. And you still have the spirit of prostitution. You see, what you find is that the tradition never, ever, ever states that she was a uh, prostitute. It's actually likely that this uh, was at least a patriarchal view and culture where sex is the worst thing you can cast upon somebody. So if you have a woman who has an issue, what are we automatically going to say? This is, okay, that's good. All right, she's been forgiven. Uh, so one of the things that you find about this story that's so fascinating is that around the 6th century, something really interesting happened. Um, and this is going to sound like I don't like men, but it's just that we're horrible. <laughs> you know, it's just that traditionally we've not exactly done the best job. And so what happens is that throughout the centuries, it was a concerted effort in the 6th and 7th century to remove Mary as a valid apostle that was equal to the disciples. Mary was an apostle with the 12. She was actually the first apostle. She was actually the first one ever to preach the gospel. She preached the gospel to the disciples. Okay, continue the story. Who was the first one to show up? Mary. Who did she, who told Peter and John? Mary. Who instructed Mary to go tell the others? Jesus. Jesus told Mary, a woman, to go tell, but we still don't allow women to preach in, in the early church.
men can do whatever they want, including be in their hands. I think men should be able to do whatever they want, including be in their hands. But the point is to use the Bible to back some type of sexist misogynistic baloney is something that's just right back in the day. And so what you find is Jesus, you find in the Gospels, do you know which disciple is mentioned more times than any other disciple? She's mentioned 12 times in the Gospel of John more than any other disciple. More than Peter, the guy that we consider the, the father of the church. And it never says that she, uh, she was a prostitute. It doesn't say that she had seven spirits that Jesus cast out. Uh, but, but immediately, what are we going to project onto her? Have you ever noticed how any time there's a woman who maybe is outgoing, or maybe she's overbearing, or she's something like that in church, she immediately is a Jezebel? Find me one time in the Bible that the, the, it mentions that she was a Jezebel. It's never mentioned. We made it up. Zero. But if there's ever a woman that's a strong, oh, yeah, she was a strong woman. So we get the same thing with Mary. And what you find is that Mary had this incredible relationship with Jesus. And for the first 500 years of the church, she was considered equal to Peter and John. She was the first bearer of the gospel. So Mary sees Jesus and considers him to be the gardener, remembering the garden theme that's throughout John's gospel. Mary asks the Christ and says, where has the body of Jesus been taking? But this point in the exchange, Christ has already spoken to his disciples. So he's already been talking with her, but somehow she's still not understanding what's happening. And, and I don't think that's because Jesus is a pig either. I think that's because it's very likely that Jesus wasn't dealing with these girls at a different time. I don't think Jesus was upset and giddy. He probably had dirt underneath his fingernails. He's not sweaty. He's been gardening. I mean, I'm, I'm being really serious. I don't think he was I don't think that's Mary being confused anywhere. I'm trying to help you guys. Isn't it even kind of demoralizing that we we kind of say, well, she just was different. Seriously? She walked with Jesus every day, spent more time with him than the disciples, and she saw him and didn't recognize him? Seriously? But regardless of how you take that, it's interesting because what changes is right here. Because what changes, even though Jesus has twice addressed her, he says he changes and does what? He calls her So John, in his incredible way, is describing here the intimacy, the relationship in this, in this exchange where it moves from just a conversation to her name. All it took for her to recognize Christ is him saying Mary. Do you see the intimacy and relationship that's communicated? He says her name, and some translations say she turned her face some say that she knew him, but we know that in every instance she cried out, Rabboni, which means teacher, meaning the wonderful teacher. She immediately began to recognize him in the way she'd known him before, which was as the rabbi. He's a disciple. He's the rabbi. So notice what happens here. He says her name, and there's an immediate recollection of, of their level of relationship. How 
see the name of that kid on there. That's how she relates. That would be good, right? Have you ever had something where, um, you know, maybe you see somebody that you've had a certain relationship with, and then you have an opportunity to not see that relationship? Maybe like some of you, it's the Dickensian that you don't like, and you saw them there. It's different. You recognize it's not the same person, but it's different the same. And, and so it's that kind of thing that she recognizes and goes, you know, this is, this is still my rabbi, but the perspective has changed. This showcases to us the example of Jesus through relationship, moving Mary from the relationship she is in now into something deeper. But because of the goodness of God, we're invited to a familiar voice. And my point is, even when God's moving us forward, he's good to us. So he's still going to invite us, invite us forward. But he's going to do it through a voice we can recognize. He's not just going to throw us. Have, have you ever had that as God's moving you forward? Maybe even recently as you've been discussing some different things where you go, man, I just feel completely deserted. I don't have a path to follow. But then you hear his voice. That's the beauty, right? And so Jesus says what many consider the rudest thing Jesus ever said. Do you know what the, I could say the rudest thing Jesus ever said? Don't touch me. Isn't that weird? Do you realize this is the most painted scene of Jesus in all of Europe? This scene. It has confused us for, for, for centuries. Because... It's so bizarre that he, it seems rude. Like, really, Jesus? Here's somebody that you had a relationship with, you were close with, and, and she reads this to you and you say, don't touch me? Doesn't that just seem bizarre? And so we have went through all of these weird things to try to make Jesus not sound aloof. But what's interesting is John gives us a glimpse into this incredible moment where Christ invites Mary past the known certitude of exchange to the scary thing. John's giving us a glimpse. Do you, how many have been told that weird thing about how he was not in his glorified body? Does anybody understand any of that? Does anybody understand? Where, like, what does that mean? Is he a ghost or is he a spirit? I don't know if it's called Alfkin or how that works. Seriously. Has anybody ever, like, You've heard those teachings, right, where Jesus is not yet in his glorified body. And so, but wait a minute, if that was the case, then how did Thomas touch him and put his hand into his side? And how did he still have the piercing? Is it kind of a spirit but not a ghost? Do you see how pastoral answers wash out sometimes? But we're looking, we're so desperate for certitude. We want an easy answer because that's just not going to be able to answer it. We don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't understand exactly why it is. But I can tell you, it's not Jesus being aloof with one of his closest friends. It's not Jesus being rude and saying, no, 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 you can't touch me. But one of the boys, Thomas, I'll invite you to touch me. Does that make sense? Jesus later is found picking on him and eating with him by the sea. Do ghosts get hungry? Like, I don't know how this works. Becca knows much more about ghosts than I do. I have to ask her later. It's probably one of those murder shows that they came back and took fish. But I, I don't understand how this happens. 
And so what I do understand that it's much more reasonable as you look at this, and it makes so much more sense for how God does things, is that John is giving us a glimpse into this incredible moment where Jesus invites Mary past the way she has been able to exchange with Jesus before. See, before she exchanged with Jesus in a very personal way. She had a specific relationship. She knew his patterns. She knew his voice. She knew how that relationship worked. Jesus is saying it can be bigger than that, but you can't do it the way you've done it before. He's inviting her past what she's known, not to betray what she's known, but past it. And what John is actually showing us here is Jesus claims something much bigger. He identifies it clearly when he says, I'm ascending to your father and my father, to my God and your God. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying to Mary, you don't have to know me as rabbi anymore in the way that you had, as the guy in sandals that you followed. Now, in the same way you've seen me exchange with the father, you are in the father. He's inviting her into the deep abode, and that is always going to move her out, or move us out of the ways we've known her. In many ways, this invitation we all receive at every point of grace and real maturation. Every time I've ever been invited by God to go further and further and further with him, it has started with knowing him. So what he does here is John, again, gives us this incredible glimpse, and he, he, he actually equates his movement in resurrection with Mary's movement in resurrection. This would have been totally awe-striking to her. In many ways, this is our invitation. This gives us permission because the growth is always into a more inclusive, universal, encompassable awareness. Let me say that again. Every movement of God is always into a more inclusive, more encompassing, and more universal awareness of how big he is. But oftentimes, what he does is he causes me to have to let go of the way I've related to him before so I can embrace him more fully. It's the wineskin. He doesn't want to pour out new wine into the old wineskin that is broken. So Jesus is going to touch me and then answers her question, not because he's being aloof or saying, no, 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 this is something special about you. He's trying to show the invitation to more. And it's always going to be somewhat disorienting. But it's still going to be the way it is. And so what you find is that without those that permission to move into this, we, we, we really don't know how to do it. But he moves us forward into the Mary, and he takes us through these incredible stepping stones. They're like lily pads in the Mott Cauldron that we move from place to place to place to place. And every stepping stone matters. Every stepping stone brought us here. 
without those stepping stones, we wouldn't be where we are now. But this journey is a yes and journey. The journey of Mary is a yes and journey. He did not ask her to forsake the way he had known her in the past. He just invited her into a deeper way that was bigger. He says, you don't have to know me as rabbi anymore. But it's now my father and your father, my God and your God. The idea is this water to wine, this beautiful cosmic relationship that we've been invited to. If not, if we don't move into this, our relationship with Jesus and with our faith stays over-personalized, exclusive, and even privatized, where we demand everyone to think like us to know what we've known. We have a privatized religion, Brent, where you have to think like I do, believe like I do, in order to have what I have. What Jesus says is, this was never supposed to be private. It was always universal. So the universal presence that Mary was invited into can be equally present in Africa with the tribal religions in the upper eastern of Ghana, as well as with the Native American Cherokees. You see, Jesus was inviting Mary to recognize Christ as something universal, eternal, infinite, and all-encompassing. And he was trying to show her that that presence was deeper than her ability to sit at his feet while he said the Beatitudes. It was bigger than that. Now, at this moment, this instant, it moves from a Jesus who told people to follow him to a Christ that was with everyone, everywhere, all the time. And so it's equally present to the people in Israel as it is to the Native Americans when they were here many years before us. It was equally present to the Jewish people when they were coming through the desert as it is with the Africans that have never heard the gospel. Because what he's saying is, it's your God and my God. He's bigger than we thought. That's what he's telling. And that is disorienting for us sometimes. And shocking for us. That's because we like right belief. He's inviting us into right practice. Have you ever met somebody and you don't, man, I'm going to be preaching today. Have you ever spent time with somebody and you say, I don't think that they believe like I believe, but when I'm around them, I feel Jesus. Have you? Has that ever happened where you've sat with somebody and, and maybe they're even their dress or their speech or, or you know them in a way that indicates that their religion is not your religion. But when you're around them, you feel Christ. You feel presence. You feel loved. Well, guess what? Maybe we need to stop trying to get them saved. Maybe we need to stop trying to convert people into what we are so they can have what we have when more than likely they already have it. Because the reality is right belief is exclusionary, but right practice is universal. This is the message of Jesus. This is the message of resurrection. So the way in our Western world we think is this rational subject to object where we're separate. And that can be incredibly helpful for some situations. But spiritual knowing is always subject to subject where we mutually submit. And I've been with people when they have been willing to submit and sacrifice and lay themselves down. And they don't know me and they don't believe like me and they don't think like me and they're not from where I'm from. And they don't maybe have the same background that I have. But that is God. 
so I spent the first part of my life thinking that I needed to not only get Buddhist saved, but also Baptist saved. Eventually, at some point, I decided maybe I don't need to get Catholic saved. Now, maybe what I'm recognizing is that the gospel was better than we thought if we would just let it be what it is in the first place. That does not mean that the founders of this are bad people. We're all descendants of bad people. We're all created in his image. Period. So, I'd like to close with this. What you find in Eastern, and this is just going to put the name, Eastern iconography um, is they're depictions of the resurrection. Remember I mentioned on Thursday that the weird thing is, is we didn't have a Bible to give us the truth. We had art. So what they would use is they would use art to depict the stories that we find in the Bible. One reason, because they didn't have Bibles. Second reason, because they couldn't read if they did have them, right? Um, sometimes I feel like I'm so clever it's pretty nifty. But what you find is that in our Western model, we have been given a very individualized version of Jesus. So we have something like this. I call this touchdown Jesus. resurrection, right? Jesus coming out of the tomb. You got the two angels there. Touchdown, Jesus. In fact, later on, uh, you've got the, the, I don't know why, he's got the blonde uh, blonde hair that is a little bit windblown. You know, he's got some hair spray on it. Um, but he doesn't yet have, he's blonde, obviously blonde by Jesus. He doesn't yet have the, the light blue Miss America sash that he ended up with at some point. Uh, but that showed up later. Um, so that's, that's Jesus. Or this one is Jesus, right? Jesus coming out of, uh, of the tomb. You've got the two angels and you've got the guards. But who is resurrected? Very question. How many people are resurrected in this picture? Who is it? Right, that's it, right? So this is the westernized version, even in our art this one. This is the more modern one. This is the Jesus Nazareth version. So now he's got the weird three musketeers, big race uh, sash going on. Uh, Dark Millennium Jesus. Um, but uh, and I'm pretty sure that he's got some soul glow astro uh, stuff going on his hair there because that looks really wavy. Um, so I don't know what that is. It's a weird looking hair Jesus. Uh, so they moved from the wind blown uh, like skirt hair spray Jesus. Uh, but now there's no angels. You've got the light around him. He's coming out of the tomb. And this is the Eastern Church traditional Jesus. For the first time, I think we're getting how we depicted the resurrection in the first place. Paul had both Jesuses. Now, I don't have time. You can Google it. It's really easy to find. But if you actually go through and depict there is some standards within Eastern, uh, and I'm certainly Eastern, and when I say Eastern, I'm talking Eastern. Um, we're talking like wilderness Eastern, right? Um, so Mediterranean art, um, Eastern European art. Um, and still to this day, this is how they depict them. Notice, you might not be able to see, but see the old man that's bound down here? That's St. Anthony. He has, he has defeated death. And on, the, on this side, this is Adam. 
And on this side, that's Eve. Women and Eve. Adam and Eve represent what? Everyone. All of humanity. Then typically what you've got is you've got some people over here. The guy that had the halo around his head that looks like he really needs a haircut and a shave is John the Baptist. Um, you typically have over here, you've got um, David and Solomon are these two with the halos. Um, but in every single picture, you have Adam and Eve being raised. Now, sometimes I don't know why Adam always looks like an old dude. He looks like he's been beaten out and Mary looks young. Uh, but that's this is how we depicted them. This is another one. Same thing. Jesus being raised. You can see him breaking open the grave and who's coming out with him. Everyone. Here's another one. Jesus coming out of the tomb. There's Hades being bound. Do you see all the other chains are broken off? Don't you see all the chains laying down in death? Because everything has been broken. Every chain has been destroyed. And here comes Jesus, and there's Adam, and there's Eve with him. Over and over and over again, you will never find them in Eastern iconography. It doesn't happen. Jesus coming out with everyone. Part of our issue of needing to understand the resurrection is about Jesus. It's certainly because of Jesus. I'm not saying that. But what I am suggesting to you is it's deeper, that it's bigger than we thought. It's universal. He came out of the grave with everyone. Says this, repeatedly, James says this. You see it over and over and over again. Peter recognizes it that it's everyone being raised. This is the way the early church saw it. This is the way the Bible depicts it. Somehow we changed it because it's all a collection of me and Jesus salvation. Here's another one, same thing. Jesus, and and you can always see these. anybody in death for his life. There is no death for him to leave anyone. Death has been destroyed. If you don't believe that, you don't believe the Bible. Death is no more. So we have to take it back to the Bible because it's destroyed. There's no death there. What do we think Paul's talking about when he's quoting from Romans? Oh, death, where is your sting? You're gone. He's destroyed it. He blew it up from the inside. It's not there anymore. He had to die so that he could blow it up from the inside. He had to experience death because God can't die. So and in dying, somehow Jesus and his humanity was able to die, but yet God could never die. And so death could not hold him. And he exploded it from the inside. This is our fight. So, remember that the prayer of Jesus before he died was, Father, that they would be in you as I am in you. That we would all be one. And we think all means Christians. He doesn't, he doesn't start with, and if they get saved, no. That they would all be one. All means all. So, everything will be all right for us. 
two anymore? All. And if it's not right for all, it can't be for me. This is the resurrection story. This is the resurrection story that gives us a role, us a place. And it's not just about some 2,000 years old event that really is uh, incredible and, and this story easy. But it actually is biblical. It's real life. It's beyond my ability to believe something. It's God's dream. My orthodoxy is meaningless without my resurrection. And we get to live in that. So, Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for the, the beauty of the gospel. It is, it is simple and it is profound at the same time. And so we ask you that you would cause us to have hope and have faith and have belief that while everybody has to make a choice, everybody uh, can choose um, to live a lifestyle that is life-giving, we also do understand that the grace work that was accomplished in Christ was accomplished for all. All are born in Christ. And with that reality, we can have hope, we can have life, and we can trust you in ways that we couldn't before. So we thank you for the Mary journey where you invite us past where we've been. You invite us past what, what has been very familiar and, and comforting and helpful to us. And we thank you that you, you don't require us to condemn us anymore. You don't require us to throw you out. You simply just say, yes, I will bear your fruit. That's all I need to know. So we thank you for the yes and dream that you're offering us. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.